everybody. Welcome to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial Worm, week by week, arc by arc. My name is Matt Freeman, your host and S-Class Worm expert, and I'm joined as always by Scott Daly, Classification Brute One. How's it going, Scott? It's going good, Matt. Um, I don't know what those things you just said mean, but I'm going to assume that it's mean to me. It's a compliment, Scott. <laughs> I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I think class one is normally not a good thing. Um, oh, it's it's like first place. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thanks, Matt. That's so nice of you. Uh, but yes, in this podcast, you will guide me, a first-time worm reader, through the mean streets of Brockton Bay as I inspect, interpret, and even speculate on what the story is and where it is going. This week, Matt, we're covering Arc 7, Buzz. And Matt, what's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. There's like there's like five people listening right now who just got that reference, and you're all my best friend. And I am not one of them. <laughs> I played it for you before we started. <laughs> I didn't know what that was, so uh, <laughs> we'll talk about this off air. Um, so so this is a pretty this is a pretty good arc, Scott. We got some pretty pretty tense escalation. We've uh, we've upped the scale of things to something you might call open warfare. Um, yeah, you might call it that. How do you how do you feel about how things are ramping up? Um, I like this a lot. Uh, I think we take, um, you know, we finished last week with Taylor's big decision. Her, um, she's now going to be a member of the Undersiders for reals, and we kind of follow that up with some pretty big consequences of that decision. Um, not really direct consequences, but a lot of indirect consequences. A lot of um, this escape that Taylor went to kind of falling apart around her as she realizes that life on the side of the fence is not as green as she thought it was. Um, I think it's really good. And like you mentioned, yeah, there's a very clear sense of like building towards something. Um, and we see by the end of the arc, what we're building towards. And I think next arc promises to be crazy. Um, but there is a lot of rising action here. Yeah. A lot of the glamor falls away from, from the various aspects of the choices she's made, like like she gradually and then severely damages a lot of her personal relationships here, and and it just seems overall like her choice is a lot worse than she thought it was at the start of the arc. Absolutely. Um, but we're gonna get into all those details in a little bit. First, let's go through some feedback from the interwebs. All right. Uh, first on Reddit, uh, Wildbo stopped by the Reddit thread again to offer some insights on his writing process for a few scenes in the last arc. Um, we're not going to go through each of the things he said here, but it was pretty fascinating. And uh, if you haven't dropped by the Parahumans subreddit, we strongly suggest that you do. Um, it's, it's, it's really fun, and, uh, and it's, it's cool to see these insights into the process that Wildbo offers, and you get to interact with a lot of fun people. Uh, in general, on the on the Reddit, we got lots of complaints about how we rushed through the final interlude last week because we were running late. And upon going back and listening, um, I agree that we moved through this section pretty quickly, but I still feel like we covered the major plot beats. What, what do you? How did you feel about that, Scott? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely understand what people were saying. Um, I covered all the things that I specifically like wrote down that I wanted to talk about. And the major thing being um, the legal ramifications of using powers in this world um, and, and seeing legally how the world 
processes these things and deals with these things and how that reflects on Taylor and the decision she just made. So the fact that we got to cover that, that's what I wanted. Um, I think, yeah, we could have spent some more time talking about Dragon and what I think she is. We could have spent more talking time talking about the prison itself and the social structure inside of it and everything around that. And we could have talked about Lung a little bit more and the fact that we get a little revelation toward his character. But with that stuff, I'm fairly confident that this is all going to come up again and we'll be able to discuss them in much more depth when they do. Um, I'll say right now that I noticed these things. I'm recording these things. I'm listening to these things and I'm thinking about these things um, and we will discuss them eventually. So just because we skip over something in one particular section does not mean that I am not noticing the things and we do not think they're important. Yeah. And, and also I'm not going out of my way to draw attention to the first mention of Glastic Wenye's name, because Scott doesn't know who that is, and it doesn't matter to him. Yeah, um, so, it sounds like you just said a whole bunch of nonsense, right? <laughs> yeah, that's there. You go. So, um, so there we go. So moving on from there, uh, both the White Squirrel and Kate Walls mentioned that uh, we've seen a few instances of heroes not acting very heroic at this point. And uh, while we agree that Taylor has made some bad decisions, there's a lot of shades of gray going on. Kate asks. Could the heroes actually be evil and the villains, or maybe just the undersiders, be morally good? From what we've seen, what kind of actions do you think um, we'll see from the protectorate wards, government entities uh, taking in future chapters? Do you think we're going to see more villains that are actually pretty decent people, or is Taylor going to end up surrounded by psychopaths? What do you think, Scott? Is there an all of the above answer on that one? Um, I think... I think people are complicated, right? And I think that's one of the things that this story is saying, that um, just because you are a supervillain, quote-unquote, does not make you a bad person. Just because you are a superhero um, does not make you a good person. And there are people of good and bad qualities on both sides. I think, while I do definitely think that there have been pains taken in the story to show the established uh, superhero authority and the protectorate and, and some of the other superheroes we've seen as not so clear-cut good. I do still think that Taylor is going down a bad road. I think that the, the things that Coyle is presenting in, in last arc and in this arc um, are things that will have very serious and bad consequences. So while I agree that, you know, um, this isn't black and white and the heroes aren't necessarily good and maybe she can do more good from where she's at, um, it, it's, 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 it's still not good for her, I guess. Yeah. There's, there's the element we briefly mentioned that, that capes tend to be people who've had rough lives because the powers come to them in moments of extreme duress. Um, so just speaking from that perspective, it makes sense, you know, and, and we've talked about this briefly before that, that all, all parahumans are in some sense people with trauma. Um, right. which is which is a theme i think so so it's it would be a bit of a it would be a bit of an ask to expect really purely morally good people to come uh, uh popping out of the woodwork yeah and i think that's an interesting twist on you know normal superhero origins right i mean like with characters like superman who stand up for truth and justice and are completely morally good like he's that way because he basically had the perfect childhood and he was raised like perfectly. He was mm -hmm. happy and cared after. So like to put people of Superman's strength and stature in the community, but yeah, have this darker past behind it is interesting. Right. Yeah. You give that power to them on the worst day of their life instead of uh, let them grow up with it. Right. Right. You get a different, different person. 
Code Zeta asks our opinion on how the birdcage is structured and accuses Scott of being cynical in assuming that people are going to escape later. What do you think, Scott? So I don't know if that's cynical so much as it is this is a story and <laughs> stories need interesting beats to them and setting up an inescapable prison without having escaping from it be a, a plot element at some point just seems, I don't know, it seems like pointless. Um, I, I do think we are going to see more of the birdcage, so I don't want to go into this. Um, I think the structure seems kind of terrible to me. Um, like the idea on the surface of that we just let these prisoners run rampant through this prison um, and they've set up their own kind of rule of law. It, it kind of it hints that like once people have been put away, authority and the law stops caring about them. Like we've, we've locked them up and it is not on us to take care of them anymore, which I think is not true. Like once you've locked someone in your facility, it is your responsibility to take care of them. And it doesn't seem like that's happening. Um, but I think we'll, we'll see more on this prison later. I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah. It, it's like, it might as well be a death sentence. Like right. obviously no one steps in to save Bakada when Lung decides it's her time. Yeah, and there are prisoners, prisons in real life that do this too. There are some prisons in some third world countries where um, the guards are just so outnumbered that they just have let the prisoners develop their own form of government and community, and it usually is uh, terrible and corrupt and results in a lot of people getting murdered. So it's not a good thing at all. Yeah, yeah. There's more to talk about regarding the birdcage. That was a very dense interlude, um, but I think we can hit all those points over a longer period of time. Yep. So on YouTube, uh, the never-ending battle to decipher exactly what Uber's power is wages on. Neither side seems to be letting up. Thousands are dead, and Scott still has no idea what Uber is. That's true. Uh, but Thomas has some thoughts on Danny's parenting, indicating that it's hinted in the story that Danny's father was abusive, and Danny might have never gotten proper instruction on what being a parent is. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense to me, actually. And, and in fact, it's it's almost like the reason he's being so hands-off is that He's terrified of being too hands-on, and he, he never wants to be like his father, so he goes too far in the opposite direction. That that sounds plausible to me. Yeah, and we go back and forth on um, whether or not we're hard on Danny or not. Um, and I think, like anything else in the story, there's a shade of gray to it. Um, Danny makes mistakes. Danny's not perfect, um, but but he is trying. And I don't like. I don't want to come off as like. Danny, you screwed this up and it's your fault that Taylor made this decision. I don't think that's true. Um, I think she was going to come to this conclusion whether he locked her in a room or not. I just think, um, you know, he just didn't know how to deal with her and he, he approached the situation wrongly. Yeah, I think that's fair. All right, Scott, let's move into the beat by beat discussion. All right. So when we left our heroes, Coyle had revealed himself as the secret benefactor of the Undersiders and the man behind all the plans we've been watching for six arcs. After murking the heroes, Taylor has decided to stay with the Undersiders in order to be true to herself and to get to know the others better. And she's also moved out of her house. So as we open uh, 7.1, we cold open on Taylor sparring with Brian as they grapple on the ground, Taylor and the other undersiders can't help but notice the sexual overtones. <laughs> Duh. I've been, you mean those things we've been noticing since arc three? Yeah. I, I think it's funny that other, other people are pointing it out, and Brian is just completely oblivious still. Yeah. yeah I mean, we learn, we learn in this arc how oblivious Brian is to a great many things. 
um, yeah. which it was surprising to me, but we'll, we'll get more on that later. Yeah, right. So uh, they chat a bit. Uh, Alec returns with lunch, and then the Undersiders are all together, so they sit down to discuss Coyle's offer uh, of, you know, essentially becoming his vassals in Brockton Bay. They agree that accepting this offer has to be a unanimous decision as opposed to their prior missions where it was just majority decision because it changes the context of the agreement entirely. First, Brian insists that Alec give them the scoop on his past identity because they don't want to walk into the situation with something hanging over them that they don't know about. And Alec explains that his dad is Heartbreaker, a parahuman who can induce powerful emotions in others by mere proximity and who formed a cult around himself by mentally enslaving women and I think other other people too by making them love him. Um, consequently, Heartbreaker has lots of kids, Alec being one of them. Alec goes on to explain that he wasn't really well taken care of beyond the basic amenities and uh, that he had to deal with his dad trying to induce trigger events in all of his kids semi-regularly by setting up tests. And also, if the kids annoyed him at all, he just hit them with unmitigated terror. Um, and then eventually, his dad ordered him to murder a captive, and so he did it. And he was probably 12 or 13 at the time, and that was one of the factors that led to him leaving. So, Scott, how do you factor in all the above biographical information into your existing understanding of Alec? Um, I think it all slides in really nicely. Um, and I, I think, shockingly, I love this um, <laughs> in that, you know, we've talked about reveals before. We've talked about setups and payoffs. And this is one of those ways in which I think reveals work best, um, that it, it's not something that you completely didn't see coming. It's just one that perfectly recontextualizes everything you've seen up until this point in a, in a realistic way and non-artificial way. Um, you know, Alec has always come off as immature, uh, not very disciplined, a strange fixation on violence, um, and, and a coldness to it. And all of that tracks with what we just learned. So it's, it's a very understandable state of mind. And also there's hints to the fact that, you know, the emotional damage that his father does could be permanent. So we could also just see, um, his kind of indifference toward violence be just a side effect of constantly being racked emotionally by this person. Um, and, and I just, I just understand him now. And I think that was really well done. Yeah. I like how this was doled out to us. I like that we get to know him and we kind of get to like him for who he is. Um, even though he's got this kind of dark side and then we're kind of told why he is that way. So it, retroactively makes us feel better right and, and a very similar thing was done with rachel too um, we got to know her as a character and then got the explanation why she was acting that way and i yeah. just think it's, it's a really good way to set up your characters and to make people care about them um first of all it's it's interesting to read it's kind of there's there's an air of mystery around a character where you see their actions you understand who they are but you don't understand the why and the why matters um but yeah. it matters in an organic way and not like a forced it's character reveal time um and i just really liked that yeah that's an interesting comparison to rachel i hadn't thought of that it kind of makes you think once again about the trauma aspect and how while regent's power doesn't mess up his his brain directly his his brain probably is messed up due to someone's power um yeah absolutely i i would i would love to just see like a a, a psychologist um or a psychiatrist sit down and, and and analyze these characters and see what kind of actual um issues they have because i'm sure they all have various ones mm -hmm. yeah that would be really cool to see um all right 
Uh, so in addition to everything that we just talked about, Heartbreaker has a history of coming after family members who leave. So the undersiders have to keep an eye out for that. But they're not really too worried about Brian's back, uh, Alex's backstory now. So they move on. Um, Brian points out the asymmetry going on between, you know, b- between going on isolated missions versus holding territory against all potential comers. So this is Brian being old, cautious Brian again. Yeah, and I think you you pointed this out a lot this arc because I was reading through your notes. Um, but you're absolutely right in that he's always taking the path of least resistance. Um, and and he has a point here that you know going on hit and run missions as they've done so far is very different from you know holding territory. It is a whole different ball game. Their plans throughout the rest of this was really just get in, take something, and get out as fast as possible. And that's how they've succeeded in what they've done. This is entirely different. So. You know, old cautious Brian has a little bit of a point here. Yeah. Well, he's always very he's always very rational. It just draws a stark contrast to Taylor, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So most of the team can't think of any particular downsides to taking the deal since they get the sense that they can just abandon later if if it's not going well for them. <laughs> which is uh... kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. These guys are not used to dealing with criminals. Um, Rachel proves to be the only holdout and quite an intractable one. She isn't even up for a discussion and she just starts to leave. But before she can leave, Taylor asks if she can come with Rachel, who at first rejects her out of suspicion that Taylor is just trying to hang out so she can pressure her to change her mind. Um, and Taylor, despite feeling de- defensive about it, forces herself to interact with Rachel, r- with Rachel using dog psychology and eventually offers to come help her care for the dogs, and if Taylor annoys her at all, Rachel is allowed to free shot at her. So were you, think back to the first time you read this, were you surprised at Rachel being the holdout? Um, because she seemed like she was always the one game for just about anything. Yeah, I think I, I, I mean, I can't, I can't tell you that I remember exactly, but I think I was like, well, it sounds like everyone's going to go along with it. And then Rachel has a problem with it. Yeah. And yeah, I wasn't necessarily surprised that she was being intractable about it because that's her character, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know in advance that she had a, a hang-up about it. Especially when, um, when Coyle revealed like the thing he had for every person last arc, hers was mm-hmm. the one that seemed the most obvious and agreeable. That she's like, "We understand you have to take care of your dogs. I will help you do that." Um, yeah. So yeah, I was a little surprised, but. Um, I, I don't have much else to say about the rest of this chapter. I, the thing that I've been doing um, for the last couple of weeks is kind of look at the first chapter as the setup for the thematic areas of the rest of the arc and trying to, to analyze and find those setups and how they're done cleverly here. And I think there are some here. Um, one, one of the big themes of this arc is Taylor's recontextualizing each of her relationships with the undersiders. And we see that kind of set up in one, how we learn about Alec. We see that in her um, attempts to to bond with Rachel. Um, we also see, um, you know, contemplating of consequences. We see the little bits of setup there as they're talking about. Um, I liked what you said about they can't see any reason why accepting Coyle's idea would be a bad thing. And they have just no idea. So I think I think that the thing that I'm noticing is this first chapter has to do a lot of things um and it's not setting up just stuff within the chapter itself it's having to set up the entire arc and uh when you pay attention to that you start to see these moments where wildwell clearly says i am setting up this this is what i'm wanting to do with this whole section of the story 
Yeah, that makes sense. But while you while you were just speaking, I was thinking about how they they all seem pretty blasé about the idea of holding territory, and very quickly within the story we see that if someone like Purity comes along, for example, they can't hold territory against anyone with like a power level too too much above their own. Um, so it's it's uh, they're they're actually being a bit delusional, even saying like, oh, you know, we'll just we'll use Taylor's bugs to make sure no one's sneaking in. And it's like, OK, yeah, what if what if someone actually strong comes? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the thing is they're very street level, right? I mean, th- these mm-hmm. th- their power sets allow them to pull off heists and to mess with people. Um, their power sets are not. And they're strong. I don't want to make it seem like they're not strong, but they're not made for that kind of engagement. And we see that in this in this arc. We see how completely underclassed they are in some areas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I think it's a fun storytelling choice that they're not a they're not a weak group, but they don't have any particular heavy hitters in their group. Um, right. So it, it means they have to be more creative and dynamic. All right. So moving on to. Chapter 7.2. Taylor immediately notices that Rachel seems more relaxed when there are fewer people around. Taylor asks her about the dogs and their training a bit, and Rachel grudgingly begins to converse. They make their way to Rachel's building, where she keeps about 10 to 20 dogs. Yeah, so I love this chapter because I've been a huge big fan of the Rachel Taylor BFF thing since I guessed that it was going to happen. But uh, I do like these two together a lot. I guessed that because it just seemed like the natural thing to do. Um, But I I really love how this part of the scene plays out. Like Taylor's trying so much here um, and she's using her skills, her rationality and her logical way to suss out problems to kind of just approach um, Rachel as um, as a, a problem to be solved. Um, but there's no like ulterior motive to it there. It's like just genuinely she feels bad for the person and she wants to connect with them. And I just think that's really touching. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. It's like, uh, it's, it's one of the things that makes Taylor likable is her desire to reach out and connect with people, even if she's doing it in, in this very uniquely Taylor way. Right. So as she's, uh, kind of hanging around in the, in, in Rachel's, dog area watching the dogs she notices with her power uh that one of rachel's dogs has a lot of bugs for lack of a better word inside it and uh rachel realizes that this is heartworm so she chains up the dog who is new and untrained and uses her power on it uh sufficiently to cause it to heal from the uh the heartworm yeah this uh so the only thing i wanted to point out here was just that Taylor reaches out to her for her power as a form of relaxation because she's in an uncomfortable mm-hmm. moment and she does it to calm herself and relax. And I think that's the first time we've seen it used that specifically. Like we've seen her reach out um, in in like defense or like subconsciously, but I've never seen her just I need to relax and chill out. So let's go hang out with bugs. Yeah, yeah, I I, I do agree. I think that's the first time that she's that she's done this, and it's kind of a shift in in a. Uh, maybe how she interacts with her power because um, we're used to seeing things like the power was roaring at the edge of her awareness and trying to intrude on her awareness. And it's almost like a more violent intrusive thing. And now maybe now that she's given herself over to being a supervillain um, rather than, rather than resisting it, she's in more of a peaceful equilibrium with it. Yeah. That's a really good point. 
So after Taylor lets her know the heartworm is gone, Rachel tells her to go shovel shit. And Taylor does some more apparent dog psychology and refuses to take the role of a servant and then refuses to back down when it comes to threats between the two of them. Um, and then Taylor kind of accepts that, or sorry, uh, Rachel kind of accepts this and uh, Taylor ends up going to pick up lunch instead. Yeah, the the cool thing about this to me was that she pushes back on her without really thinking about it. Like, uh, I think specifically the quote is, she says, fuck you, the words spilled out of my mouth before I could censor them. I wasn't positive I wanted to censor them, but it bugged me that I'd done it without thinking it through. Now, of course, that's Taylor being upset with herself for not thinking anything through, but it just so happened that pushing back in this manner against Rachel was the exact right way to do it, because that's what she responds to. But... It wasn't her like setting about and thinking logically how her mind works and how she would respond to stuff. It's just how she naturally acted. Um, and first of all, I love how Taylor's like, quote unquote, learning to act a little more rash. Um, and but I also love that, what this says about her and that their friendship might just be a little bit more natural. Like it's not just going to be Taylor um, constantly thinking about every word she says in order to make sure that. Uh, that Rachel's happy it's like maybe they just get along better just naturally yeah yeah that's a good point yeah that also kind of draws my attention to how I think I think both Lisa and Brian at different points in this chapter describe Taylor as being you know analytical and, and logical um, and and obviously she's been described that way before and and that's that's true where it's true but I think maybe other characters tend to miss this uh, kind of angry, impulsive side of her um, that we get to see because we're in her head. Right, right. Yeah, and I think I think the easy answer to that is she's kind of both too, right? I mean, like, mm -hmm. she can be very analytical, very focused, but she also, you back her into a corner and she acts uh, on instinct. Um, mm -hmm. So that's really interesting. Yeah. 7.3 starts and uh, Taylor's returned with the food that she went to pick up. And then her and Rachel just hang out and watch the dogs together. They chat a bit about the perils of dog ownership. Um, I, I think it's really interesting how this dialogue reads to me as combative and, and unpleasant, unless you know about Rachel's psychology. And then if you know about Rachel's psychology, it's, it seems more like the verbal equivalent of two dogs wrestling to pass the time. Like when, when, uh, you know, when Taylor says, acknowledge me, damn it. That's like, not something you'd really say to a normal person unless you wanted them to, you know, take it wrong. But, but Rachel just kind of takes it like a demand for her attention the way a dog would. Like if you kind of like, you know, grab them by the scruff and, and look at them and they look right, at you, it's right. like she doesn't get offended by it. Um, uh, so yeah, they end up, uh, Rachel gives her the ball thrower to play with the dogs and then Rachel starts telling her the dog's histories. Yeah, um, I really like this too, and I like I like what you said about how uh, about that they're they're like dogs playing, um, and and that goes kind of back to just the last chapter where Taylor's sitting there uncomfortable watching two dogs roughhouse, and she's like worried because she thinks they're getting they're like playing too hard, and Rachel mm -hmm. kind of just says, "No, as long as there's no blood, it's fine," and that's kind of <laughs> what what's happening here is like they're being rough with each other, they're being uh socially rude to each other but uh i mean they're just they're just having a uh a, a match of um power i guess yeah um, it, it even gets to the point of 
threats of violence a bit later on between right. the two of them. And, and then they just kind of back down again. And it's almost like this is just for Rachel. This is more like testing and establishing rapport, um, which is, you know, yeah. interesting. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we, uh, Rachel just mentions another detail of her power, which is that um, it can heal the dogs that it's used on, but it seemingly can't heal injuries that existed before Rachel met the dog, or at least that's what we're given to understand at this point. Yeah, and I like this detail a lot because it kind of shows Rachel's passion a little bit here, that she, like, can't just grow all the dogs and heal them, and then they'll all be fine. Like, she really, really cares about these dogs, and it's not, like, it's not just because of her power, it's just because of who she is. Mm -hmm, right. Um. Rachel goes on to muse about if dogs could have trigger events. What do you think about this, Scott? You know, I, I thought about whether or not we should actually talk about this or not, but it got my <laughs> it got my brain spinning so much that I felt like we have to talk about it. It's, it's funny, like one little sentence in my brain like races off. Like, yeah. um, so I guess the train of thought here is that if people knew that punishing dogs could trigger them to develop superpowers, they might treat dogs nicer. Um, but of course, you can make that same argument with people, and I think Taylor's a really good case of. Um, should we not shove this person into a locker with tampons because maybe she'll get superpowers and come back and kill us. Um, yeah. but it seems like in this world that is not really taken into consideration. I know it, Taylor says that most people aren't as aware of what trigger events are, um, outside of the Cape community, but, um, it, it seems like this is not a thing that has changed behavior in the world. So I think Rachel's, um, wish is kind of foolhardy. Um, because people are still assholes to people, no matter if being an asshole gives them superpowers or not. Right. And and really, you know, if someone's going to mug somebody, they don't know if the person they're mugging is actually, you know, glory girl necessarily. So right. so it's already it's already a pretty big risk. But I, I think one thing that I mean, I don't, I don't remember if this number ever actually comes up in the story, but I think one thing to mention is that power, is that uh, powers are, are really, really, really rare, like. And it, that kind of makes sense because Brockton Bay is like a, you know, a normal sized city and you get the sense that we probably know most of the parahumans in the city at this point. I don't know if that's the sense mm -hmm. you get, but is, is that the sense you get at this point? E no, I, I probably not because I feel okay. like, and maybe it's just my, my not, not great understanding of how many people are actually in the, the uh the protector because I, I, I know the main players in that but i don't know if there's like a whole team i mean we, maybe i don't know i i don't have a good sense that i know everyone or not but i do agree that it's pretty firmly established how rare they are although it's also established that on as time goes they're getting less and they're less and less rare because mm -hmm. um they propagate through um through dna and through children so um mm -hmm. as things as things are going to go superpowers are going to get more and more common Mm, that's yeah that's true um so as they're hanging out they hear a bottle break outside and rachel says these guys again and goes to handle it she brings her three main well-trained dogs with her and confronts a gaggle of white supremacists at the front door um yeah um just, just as an aside i was trying to puzzle out what this 83 tattoo means uh I was trying to think, like, sh should I be able to figure this out knowing what I know about the story? It's like Heil something starting with a C, uh, but I couldn't figure it out. So Yeah, I tried to do some research, and I couldn't figure it out either. I just thought it was some setup for a payoff, but now 
now I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it may be that, and I'm and I'm just forgetting something. But listeners, if you if you know what the eighty three tattoo means, let us know. So the skinheads obviously want Rachel out of the area, and they've obviously talked themselves into the idea of using violence to make her leave at this point. Um, when it becomes apparent that things are escalating, Taylor tries and fails to find something to use as a mask. While she's looking for the mask, a gun comes into play, and of course she's aware of all this because she's kind of watching everything with her bugs, and Taylor has to move faster, so she draws all the bugs in the area, of which there are a lot because it's an outdoor dog park, essentially, um, and has them climb up over her body. Um, This actually seems to be the first time that Taylor is actually grossed out by being covered in her own bugs, although really she's only grossed out because she knows they're covered in dog poo. Yeah, they're poop-eating bugs. This is gross. This is so gross. I kind of wanted to throw up reading this. But I am surprised at how grossed out she was. Um, judging by like how used to the bugs being around her she's gotten, um, her reaction here kind of surprised me a little bit. But, I mean, you are right. These are poop bugs, and they're crawling all over her skin and on her face and her eyes. <laughs> yeah, she goes out of her way to point out that normally she has her costume on, and so the bugs are not actually on her skin. And so this is different, but yeah, um, yeah. Maybe she's maybe even this is desensitizing her to it gradually, though. And she's just not going to care anymore at all soon. <clears throat> so as she's heading outside, she sends a text to all the other undersiders, uh, but only gets a response from Brian. Uh, Taylor ends up with a bug suit, several layers thick, and then she grabs a knife and heads outside. And I absolutely love everyone's reactions here too. Taylor completely covered in a thick layer of writhing bugs. Um, it's just, it's just my favorite thing. Yeah. And they, well, they're all right. Cause it's super gross. <laughs> it's super gross. I would react that way too. If a bug person walked outside. Yeah. There's a reason the funniest part to me is Rachel just going like, what the hell? <laughs> so one of the gang members pretty much unhesitatingly shoots Taylor or shoots at Taylor, I should say. The bullet passes through where her torso would be if she were actually standing up, but surprise, she's crouched down, and she's using the bugs to form kind of a person-shaped tower over herself as a decoy. Um, So Taylor would have died just then because she didn't have any armor. She was thinking ahead. Uh, She uses her bug sounds to accentuate her voice and make herself even creepier than she already is at this point. And less human. She pretends that she can turn into bugs, which, why not? Again, this is our motif of knowledge or ignorance about people's powers being a major factor in deciding the outcomes of fights. Yeah, and again, we're seeing, you know, Taylor come up with new, really cool things for her powers to do, basically on the fly. That's a, that's a pun. That's a pun. Did you get it? Did you get yeah, it? Because um, <laughs> flies are, are bugs. I didn't know. Oh, I get okay. it now. Yeah, um, but no, but she, like she reads the scene, she parses the information out, and she comes out with these plans um, it's quickly. And and yeah, she technically, it states that she borrowed from what Gru did with his shadow stuff before and what Tattletale did with misinformation, but she puts her little skitter twist on it, um, and she just does this without like any real setup. I mean, like it technically all makes sense from a a world perspective. But like I said last week, we don't when Taylor does stuff like this, we don't see her like planning it out. We just see her do it. Um, And that's, I think, reflective of the fact that she makes these decisions very quickly and she's she's very quick on it. So we don't see her planning it out because she doesn't really. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I just think that's really cool. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so the boy uh, shoots at Taylor a few more times and then turns the gun on Rachel. Uh, so Taylor decides she actually has to end this. So she tackles the, the guy, covers him in the swarm, and slices his forehead with her knife in order to make an even more horrific scene. <laughs> and she, she actually justifies this as being more humane than letting the dogs tear the gang members apart which I suppose is fair on one level. But again, what's disturbing here isn't that she does this. It's that she's so cold and flatly rational about it. Yeah, it's like she's some sort of a bug person. <clears throat> cold and instinctual and bug-like. Yes. Um, mm. I actually meant to talk about this when the reveal of what the powers can do to your brain uh, was revealed. Um, because I think, you know, there's a second there where Taylor wonders if it happens if it happened that way to her and lisa kind of shrugs it off um but you know I, I really think of you know whenever it's a mind kind of shaped power like with uh with rachel or with uh, uh labyrinth we see like that it has the effect on them and, I, and part of me wonders if this is an effect of her power and i'm not ready to like nail it down and call it a, a formal prediction just yet um i just think it's very narratively interesting that her coldness could be a result of her actions but um, it, it could also be something to do with just her power. Mm -hmm. Um, and especially since it like seems, it seems to happen at times where she's like either reaching for or actively using her powers is when suddenly, um, her, she's cold and kind of, uh, not like noticing the amount of violence she's, she's in, inflicting on people. Um, but then in other times we see her where she has a very strong moral compass and a conscience, but it's the times where she's actively using her powers where that seems to go away. So, um, I, I don't know how this going to built out, but I, I noticed it. Um, and I'm thinking about it. Yeah. I think that all makes a lot of sense. I remember, I remember being surprised at at Tattletale's dismissal of the idea that her power has affected her mind because i'm like well you're yeah it's a it's partially a sensory power and and i kind of think of your sensory perceptions as in some sense being part of your mind and it, it definitely changes how she thinks because it, it broadens her awareness of things that's already an effect on her mind especially um, since it's kind of close to rachel's power i mean it's not exactly but they're both um both their powers allow them to control living creatures in some way um mm -hmm. so it's it's very similar um and the fact that you're right that Tattletail just shrugged it off and that Taylor was just like, yeah, okay. And just didn't mm -hmm. think about it at all from that point on is, is interesting. Yeah. 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 That's, that's something I think is definitely worth tracking going forward. This, this theme of, I mean, this all goes hand in hand with the theme of, of the powers and, and as a metaphor for trauma and, and so forth. Right. Right. But it could be more than a metaphor, I think is what you're saying. Yeah. So the skinheads are scared off by Taylor's attack and Taylor tries to point out uh, that this would be a good reason to leave the area. But Rachel invokes their deal uh, of punching Taylor if she annoyed her to shut her down. And then they go back inside. And Rachel doesn't look as angry as usual. It's because she's impressed because they're best friends. Yeah. Forever. yeah. Best friends. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, honestly, Scott, this is this is pretty this is pretty chummy for Rachel. So yeah. your prediction, yeah. I, I don't know at what point it becomes appropriate to 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 just call that prediction because like Rachel's going to continue to be Rachel you get the sense so she's not right. going to suddenly just be like oh my god you're my best friend yeah yeah hugging you know side hug you know i'm ready to call it but that's yeah. up to you I, I mean i think yeah i think we can call it okay. I, I think it's i think it's fair all right one i got one right there you go one in the bag <laughs> 
So Brian finally arrives while Rach and Taylor are in the middle of shoveling dog poo. Brian tries to convince Rachel to leave the area, but Taylor eventually, uh, you know, he's not successful because he's never successful with trying to convince Rachel of anything. But Taylor eventually prevails by impressing the need to protect your dogs from the threat to poison the dogs with, with poison hot dogs that the skinheads had made. So Rachel finally agrees that she needs to move the dogs to a more, more protected area and decides that she's going to accept Coil's offer. Yeah, this is cool because it's more reinforcement of the dog-like thinking, right? It's like Rachel is concerned about territory. She's concerned about a show of force. Um, these are the things she thinks about first. And Taylor knows how to both appeal to those parts of her while also kind of getting her to do what she wants. Um, and I think, again, this is something I've been thinking for a while, but I don't know if I've actually made it... Uh, I've declared it on the podcast, but um, Taylor definitely seems like she's a better leader than Brian is. Um, and there's been kind of hints at that going through the last few arcs. And I think this is another big one. And I'm kind of wondering to myself how long until this Taylor as leader thing becomes official, because it just seems like she's got a better grasp on how to deal with all these people and to lead all these people. Yeah, she, I agree that she seems much better at people stuff. Um, it's, that's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting situation that we have. A, a male leader who is not so good at people stuff who mm-hmm. is in a situation where he may be demoted and replaced by a female leader. <laughs> Does this sound familiar? I'm sorry. I'm spoiling later in the chapter. Sorry. Um, so Rachel is able to read from Taylor's body language after Brian walks away that Taylor is into Brian and Taylor is forced to admit it because she doesn't want to lie to Rachel. Rachel just proposes that Taylor offer to sleep with him and solve the problem because why make it more complicated than it needs to be? So Scott, she's offering Taylor advice. Yeah, I win. I mean, yeah. their relationship advice, they're sharing relationship advice, they're sharing jackets and they're shoveling yeah. poo together. I mean, that's, that's what best friends do. So yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, so as Brian makes his way in, he says that he can't get a hold of coil and Lisa and Alex still haven't responded to Taylor's text asking for help. So it's decided that something big might be going on and uh, Taylor and Brian head back to the lair while uh, while Rachel deals with the dogs. Brian is such a warrior, don't you think? <laughs> yes. So they discuss on the, on the way the fact that Rachel has been a source of a lot, a lot of team problems. This episode with the skinheads included and Rachel takes this up. Uh, sorry, Taylor takes this opportunity to try to communicate some of the key lessons of dog psychology to Brian without really letting him know that that's what she's doing. So she's mainly focusing on Rachel's need to challenge Brian because he's the alpha. But she explains this in terms of, oh, it's her upbringing. She doesn't explain it in terms of she thinks like a dog. Yeah. And again, that's Taylor being a leader, not only in how she's presenting this information to Brian, but dogs challenge the alpha when they do not feel that the alpha is strong enough to lead the the pack. And all of a sudden we've seen Rachel kind of, I'll say warm up, although that's not really it, but we've seen her um, take it, take more of an interest and more of a kindness toward Taylor. Maybe it's because she's recognizing her, her new, but maybe unestablished, uh, stint as the alpha of the group. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So they make their way to the to the lair, the hideout. I guess they call it the loft. I, I like how Brian uses his darkness specifically to silence the opening of the door. That's one thing that it's like we knew he could do that, but it's just clever and very organic how he does it. Yeah. So it turns out that Lisa had been on the phone with Coil this whole time, and Alec is just goofing off on the couch and not paying attention to his phone. 
Yeah, it's like we once again see, even though the stakes have been ramped up, the world is expanding out and the amount of things that the Undersiders are responsible for continues to grow. Uh, Alec still kind of just sees this as a game and doesn't take it very seriously. And uh, and I think I, I'm confused. As, what was the rationale for Lisa again? I can't quite remember um, that well, she was just busy on the phone and or her, her she had to get a new burner or something. So she didn't get the new number. I think it was. But yeah, um, something to do with just not having the right phone at hand, I think. Yeah. But I mean, like this is serious stuff now. We're dealing with with really serious things and um, no one takes this as seriously as Taylor does and, and Brian to a certain extent. Yeah. And and also, yeah, now that you point that out, this is a perfect example of like if they're going to be holding territory, the whole idea there is that if, you know, someone comes onto their territory, they're going to have to be very responsive and, right, exactly. and coordinate to respond to it quickly. And, and they can't just do this thing where they plan out something ahead of time that's going to be like, meet here now. And then if, if you don't show up, you've you've really let the team down. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah. Uh, so Lisa is on the phone with Coil because something big has indeed happened. She's on her computer. She's viewing an email uh, in which the secret identities and phone numbers, addresses, and other personal details of the top members of Empire 88 are revealed, um, even those without powers. So the evidence is just devastatingly complete and convincing and completely exposes all of the capes in Empire 88. And then you see the, the email is also CC'd to like all of the media outlets in the city and big national ones, and that it was sent about an hour ago roughly when they were having their altercation with uh with rachel yeah and i think this is our first hint at what um the means of coil's plans will be will end up being justified by the ends um now we're outing people as identities we're endangering their families um in this particular case it's not seen as necessarily that bad of a thing um because empire 88 are literal nazis (laughs) um and probably deserve just about everything they get but it, it is just a kind of a show of what Coil is willing to do. Um, like, does he have this kind of information on the Undersiders? He probably does. Um, what's to stop him from using it on them if they ever, like, we talked earlier about how they said, oh, well, if they stop liking the deal, they can just get out. Like, that's just like, it, 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 this guy is going to do whatever he needs to do to get what he wants. And he sees these people as pawns, not as actual friends or people to stick up for or people to protect. Um, if that's not, if that doesn't align with his plans. Yeah. Yeah. I I like the, the beat here that, that Lisa is really taken aback that he's done this because she actually, and we're going to see this again in in a little bit. She seems to have actually bought into her shtick about the cops and robbers nature of, of the Cape scene. And it really bothers her that Coyle has violated this because I think it's important to her conscience in some sense that she continued to see this cape adventure as as a big game and now coil has kind of ruined that by by ruining these people's lives and uh and so she's starting to starting to feel some strain here yeah we're gonna see it later in the the arc but she is much the same as taylor in some aspects where she Mm -hmm. rationalizes and um, compartmentalizes information mm-hmm. yeah. um, to seat to suit her morals and her needs. Totally. Um, yeah. So, so they briefly discuss amongst themselves the notion that Coyle uh, planned this to to come out right when they were, you know, just happened to get into an altercation with the with the Empire eighty eight. Um, 
but they agree that it doesn't really make sense. It's not Coyle's style. And also, Coyle was pretty sure that he was, you know, he already had the undersiders in the bag, so they don't see why he would do that. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's bullshit, and that's really stupid of them to just make that assumption. Um, first of all, Coyle just seems to know things that others don't. Um, we know that Rachel was a firm no vote until the moment um, with Empire 88, right? Um, yeah. It's funny that they just happened to show up at the exact same time she was there feeding her dogs, which just happened to be the moment where all the information was the, released. Now, sure, that could be a lot of coincidences, but you start stacking coincidences on top of each other and it starts to seem like a plan. Um, there's like there's so much they don't know about Coil, and there's so much they don't know about his plan. And, you know, something that's just occurring to me now is the whole idea of the underside. We've we touched on this, but the whole idea of the undersiders being an enforcement group that can hold territory seems contrary to everything that he's used them for up until this point. And, and it just seems like they don't fit in that role. So, like, I'm not entirely convinced he even wants them for what he's saying he wants them for. So, like, the, the fact that they're being so trusting of this guy is is ridiculous. Yeah, especially after last arc, he was like, I admit that I considered you expendable and sent you on a lot of really tough missions just to see if you would make it. <laughs> right. But now that you have, you're very important to me and I won't let anything bad happen to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's just like the, the, the amount of mental leaps they're trying to make with this thing because they want what he wants to give them to be true is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely kind of found their weaknesses and... And, and yeah, it does seem throughout this chapter, actually, that they're borderline desperate to to make this deal work. Um, most of right. them are, some of them less than others, definitely. Um, and obviously that's going to fall out near the end. But but yeah, like they're they're kind of closing their eyes to a lot of realities to to make that make sense to themselves. Yeah, especially Taylor, who I think needs this to be the right move to justify the decision she made. Mm -hmm. um, so she's kind of desperate to believe in him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So 7.5 opens. Uh, Brian, a.k.a. Chicken Little, says it's too dangerous to stay in the hideout and suggests that the team split up. <laughs> so mean to him. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, he's, it's just so consistent. Every everything he does in this chapter is just like, oh, we better avoid that danger. Yeah, no, you're oh, right. Let's 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 proactively. I mean, and, and again, none of it is irrational. It's just it's just very consistently characterized as making the cautious choice at every opportunity. So, yeah, they split up and go into hiding. Taylor and Brian will stay at Brian's swank bachelor pad, and Lisa and Alec will sleep in dog excrement. <laughs> so, on the one hand, you see this as Brian wanting alone time with Taylor. On the other, you see Brian's kind of vindictiveness because he's still pissed off at Lisa and Alec for um, failing to answer the call, um, which, I mean, I guess you could technically call good leadership, but I don't really think so. Mm. Um, but this is this is funny. Yeah, right. Oh yeah, and and that speaking of him getting uh getting really annoyed with Alec, this is another like rift within the team. Like when Taylor made her decision, she felt like she was part of this team and and they were all pals kind of. Like even Rachel, she was like she was kind of working on Rachel. But at this point, this is the first kind of I think this is the first rift and we're going to see more in in a little bit where now Brian is really mad at Alec, and you can tell that Alec is pretty annoyed with him, but he's pretty flat and affectless, so it's hard to tell. Um, and it's it's not going to get better from this point. No, no. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. That uh, Again, this this whole theme of 
now that you've committed to it, this becomes the real world and things aren't as as nice and escapist as they appear to be. So Taylor takes this opportunity to shower quickly, and she puts on the lower part of her costume with the upper part tied around her waist so she can put on her costume really quickly, which obviously she's doing because she was just caught in a pickle an hour ago where, um, you know, in order to help Rachel, she needed some kind of costume or or mask, and she didn't have it, so she's going to avoid that happening again. They head to the bus stop together, and they talk about whether the other team members will think Brian is being paranoid, which they they agree that they will think that. But what do you think, Scott? Do you think this was a paranoid choice? I mean, probably a little. I'm confused as to why he's so concerned about what they would think about it. Um, I think maybe he's starting to get the idea that he's not as good of a leader as he thinks he is. He even comments on the fact that like he just kind of instinctually takes charge and orders people around without ever like really been given the authority for it. Um, but, I mean, I think he's also being kind of smart here. I mean, like, it, it turns out that that he was kind of right yeah. in what, what we see. So, I mean, you know, you're only paranoid until, until you turn out to be right. Yeah. yeah I think that makes sense. Um, yeah. I, I think I remember at the Somers rock meeting with all the villains, it's like, it's almost portrayed as if um, Gru is grudgingly taking the role of leader because they have to have a representative of the undersiders, but he's not really the leader. Um, it's, right. it's it's kind of a weird nebulous position where he's kind of a leader, but not really. Mm-hmm. So they get on the bus together and Taylor continue, continues their ongoing casual body contact as he stands beside her on the bus. So, so we're going to talk about this, I think, later when we get to the reveal of their relationship. But I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I think I think Scott and I are on the same page with regard to the meaning of casual body contact. <laughs> so. But then Sophia boards the bus. Oh, this bitch. Oh, yeah. I hate her. Yeah. So Taylor immediately goes in fight or flight mode as Sophia looks around the bus and eventually sees Brian and is checking him out pretty obviously. So Taylor reacts to this by asking Brian for a favor, telling him to play along. And then when he bends down, she kisses him on the lips. And at this moment, she feels complete calm the tension melts away and there's utter peace and then brian disengages and doesn't really you know he she shakes her head so he doesn't react and then taylor looks back at sophia to make sure that her audience is paying attention and then soon they get off the bus and go shopping um so before i tell my reaction scott what was your reaction to this scene in general this is not cool of her to do at <laughs> all i didn't like it, it's just it's like I understand her motivation for it, but it's just so manipulative and it's just completely insensitive to Brian's feelings. Um, And like, it it also seems kind of out of character for Taylor. Like as this person who like couldn't even make her way through a conversation with him when they were alone now, like suddenly does this, I get, but again, that goes back to how Taylor is when she's thinking about things, she can't do it. But like when she's kind of pushed into a corner and goes into this flight or fight or flight mode that you mentioned, um, she acts on impulse. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it's really fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think the first time I read this, I was definitely thinking of how it's kind of shitty to use a person as a prop like this. Um, like if Brian did have feelings for her at this point and then realized that she had only kissed him to stick it to some third party, then wouldn't that have hurt? Uh, to hear like in, in fact yes. 
I think that when I when I read the following scene, I may have even thought to myself, like maybe he maybe he does have feelings for her, but now he's hurt and he's denying them because he's like, I'm not gonna open my heart to this person who's gonna jerk me around like this. Um, yeah. Yeah. So so uh, yeah, it's a it's very very interesting dramatic situation we're in, Scott. <laughs> Absolutely. So we move into chapter seven point six. And uh, they get off the bus, and Taylor defers explaining what just happened until later. They see a store window um, that, where the news stations are broadcasting the scoop on the Empire 88 reveal, basically just spilling all the secret entities right there on the TV. The two undersiders split up to grab food and toiletries and so forth. Taylor heads to a, a used bookstore to buy a book on dog psychology in order to get a leg up on the Rachel situation. Yeah, so, I mean, my big takeaway from here is that Taylor takes what was a stupid decision in the last uh, chapter and, and builds on it and makes it worse. Um, by hiding the reasoning from Brian, it only, like, makes it even worse because, really, her motivation for doing so is just because she doesn't want to have the conversation. It really has nothing to do with, I need to be in private to do this. It's just she's putting off the conversation for as long as possible, and she's disrespecting him again. Yeah, it, it's hard to say how much of this is that she knows she kind of made a mistake there or how much of it is fairly uh, predictable, like mm -hmm. nerves, um, you know, understandable nervousness about about the topic, which she's she's demonstrated before. Right. So while she's in the bookstore, someone sneaks up on Taylor. And at first we think it might be Brian, but it turns out to be Sophia, who's followed her into the bookstore just to kick the crap out of her. And this is a really vicious attack. This is a significant step up from the more petty assaults that have taken place in school. Sophia practically rips off Taylor's ear and claws her cheek with her fingernails. And uh, Taylor eventually fights back by striking her with a book. And uh, the two of them kind of square off with Sophia just talking shit at her for a while, explaining that she's furious that Taylor told the authorities and got her s suspended and basically saying like, yeah, you're, you're lower than me and your role is to just eat shit, Taylor. Um, but before the fight can continue, Brian shows up and puts a stop to it. Yeah, so this whole thing is like really violent. Um, and we've talked about escalation in relation to the story a lot. And, and what we're seeing here is escalating from uh, bullying being mean pranks that are still awful um, to just physical, flat-out violence. Just, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. Um, I do have a theory about Sophia uh, that I think became apparent to me after this section, but I will save that for Scott's speculation. Uh, trademark, trademark, trademark. Um, but uh, yeah, this this was kind of shocking, and, and I think it goes to show, once again, that Taylor's escapism is crashing down around her, in that she made this decision, she's going to fully embrace the supervillain side, um, but suddenly, after this choice, here's your bullies again. You cannot escape from them. They're here again, and they are hurting you even more now yeah and and her choice doesn't help her with this at all she can't no she can't use her powers i mean I, it mildly helps in the sense that she has brian to back her up now but she's still like she, it doesn't count as a win in her mind she's not like yeah i i stood up to sophia and then brian came and backed me up it's more like i got the shit kicked out kicked out of me by the bully again <laughs> right per right period basically um that doesn't doesn't feel good at all um yeah so yes yeah, so she's She's once again refrained from using her bugs um, when she when she could to get out of a situation because 
her life really would be a lot worse without a secret identity. Yeah, but that's, I think the interesting part is that is the only reason she doesn't use her bugs here. Um, mm -hmm. It's not because she thinks it's wrong to use her bugs on her bullies or use them on just civilians in general, but it's specifically because then she'd be discovered. So that's a change in her that, that uh, I think was a long time coming, but yeah. yeah. So they, they make their way out of the store after, after having to deal with the shop owner and Taylor finally has to explain the kiss. And she explains that it was partly for show for Sophia. Although I don't know if that's true. Uh, and then partly for Taylor herself, uh, because she likes him. And uh, she explains in Taylor terms why she thinks she likes him. Yeah, I love that she's kind of taking Rachel's advice here, right? And just going for it. Um, but she's doing it in just the most Taylor way possible, which includes like spreadsheets and lists of all the things she likes about him that are all tabulated and collated. Um, yeah, and which, I like which that, he calls her out on. Yeah, yeah. He, he immediately calls her out on it. But uh, but she gets she gets rejected, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I remember this being pretty, pretty uh, gut wrenching when I when I read it. And so, you know, it, it, like to a funny extent, like I remember being, you know, a grown ass man with children sitting on like my commuter train reading this. And just being like severely upset about this, this rejection of the teenage superhero in my, in my, <laughs> in my, in my internet web serial. Um, so like, cause I was just not expecting this because the, the, the story really has, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think you were expecting this either. The story has, has no. really set up this, like Brian is, is clearly into her. He's may not be the most competent at, at, at giving signals, um, or, or, or like getting subtext, but but it's like it's obvious that he is into her. So so why does this happen? Yeah. Um, and I mean, he kind of explains it. He he's apologetic and he's like, he's like, you know, I haven't spent much time around girls, and I and I just don't think much about relationships. And he thinks of her like his sister, a friend, and he and he just has pity for the bad experiences she's had to endure. God, he doesn't even know the right ways to, to shut someone down because yeah, calling them right. your sister is not it. No. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this and you know, I'm still not I still really haven't like gathered them because like on the one hand you're right, we've seen so many signals from him that he's at least somewhat interested in her. Like so many very clear obvious signals. Um so on the one hand, I'm not like I don't think he's being entirely honest with himself, but but on the other hand, we're also in Taylor's head, so maybe this was just her reading into these moments a little more than she should. Um, and her like putting some of this on him, even though he wasn't acting that way. But then on the other, other hand, like Taylor's default state is not to assume that he's into her, but rather assume that he's not. So like her putting this stuff on him would be kind of against her character. Um, so I don't know, like you're, you're right that it was very surprising. I mean, I texted you the moment it had happened. I was just yeah. like, no, yeah. um, but I don't know. I'm still, I'm still very up on the air, up in the air on it. Um, I'm just not yeah. sure. Yeah, about what, what all this means. I, I remember this right. moment earlier when Tattletale basically said, I don't, I don't need, I think it was something like, I don't even think Brian knows what he's thinking with regard to romantic things, um, which, you know, I interpret as meaning like Tattletale's assessment, whether she's using her power or not, is that Brian is a guy who's really deeply not in touch with his feelings. Um, so maybe that's part of what's going on here. Right. Um, that's just a, just a thought because I, I remembered that 
Yeah, and and I do think you're right that there's something to the fact that she used him as a prop that maybe put him on the defensive with this, that this was really not the way for him to find out this, mm-hmm. um, that it was not a good scenario for that realization to come to him. So um, I'm not f- fully ready to declare the, the Brian Taylor romance dead, but this was definitely surprising. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this chapter, she's been physically beaten by her bully and then rejected by her crush. So this is overall a pretty ball-crushingly depressing chapter. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it fits in with what we're doing in this arc, right? Um, This is Taylor discovering new things about the choice that she's made that aren't so special and escapee. Taylor made this decision, um, the decision to chase that, like, escapist rosy happy fun time thing that she felt when she was being skitter and she was with the undersiders now she's fully committed to this and it's the real world um and where it's not so happy it's not as fun as she thought in the real world uh the boy you like doesn't always like you back in the real world the bullies who were driving you crazy at school don't just bully you they beat the shit out of you um and in the real world your decisions have consequences like, you know, for example, like a crazy white powered superhero flying around, blowing the shit out of the poor side of town. Yeah. Which is the most beautiful transition in the world to the next chapter. Go, Matt. Here we go. 7.7. <laughs> in Brian's apartment, they're watching on TV as purity systematically obliterates much of the docks area, starting off by flattening Rachel's recently vacated dog shelter. So good thing they uh, convinced her to leave. Yeah. Remember when we were in the head of purity for a second there. And she said that she wasn't all into the white powery stuff. Um, but we do see the first area of town, uh, she destroys is the poor and usually, usually a demographically non-white part of town. Um, yeah. So purity is not as a uh, pure no. as, as she claims to no. be. She doesn't have a pristine white conscience. <laughs> Jesus. These right, puns. One. Yeah, this is getting bad. So, so Taylor immediately upon seeing this uh, starts getting ready to go out and fight Empire 88, but Brian stops her because it's not their job. And at, at which point we get the awesome moment where they're interrupted from the TV saying, Undersiders, a female voice cut into the conversation, protectorate, take note. I thought that was kind of... Yeah, it's really cool, and, and it's really wonderfully timed because it like it solves their argument for them, which which happens a lot between these two guys, these two characters, yeah. um, that their arguments get solved by some outside force. It's true. Um, so so, purity explains that this is happening because when the secret identities were revealed, something was taken from her, and of course we we understand it from context because we had the purity interlude that she's talking about. Aster having been taken by the by the good guys um and we already know that she's you know as tattletale describes a pretty protective mama bear so she kind of loses it <laughs> and uh she wants her kid back and she thinks the undersiders did this because uh you know as as we're kind of told because they have tattletale with them and because there's been this recent conflict and um coil apparently is not doing anything to uh or, or rather Kaiser is not really doing anything to uh, convince him otherwise. Yeah, I think we talk about the interludes a lot. And I think in the first the first arc, uh, you said that some of the interludes are some of your favorite parts of the story. And I think it's really cool that um, we get to see that power here um, Mm -hmm. in that, you know, it really would have killed the momentum of this chapter to have someone stop and explain 
well, Purity is really upset right now because they took her kid, and so you don't understand, like, her kid is really important to her, and here's all the reasons why her kid is important to her, and, and all this yeah. stuff, like, that would have just killed everything, but, like, we just know, because we've been in her head, and we've seen how she feels about this child, and how, like, she, everything she puts into, like, her child is the source of her powers, kind of, and that she needs to think about the kid to to channel her power, so... um the interludes are really good and they really fill in the gaps and holes in, in, in the story to, to, for this to mean more to us. Yeah. It really, really fleshes, fleshes it out and shows you the world from different eyes. Mm -hmm. So then purity grabs the camera from the cameraman who she's, you know, using for her announcement and points the camera at the cameraman who's on the ground. And then the two villains, night and fog, murder the cameraman graphically using their combo power. So for me, this is another one of those escalation of threat and violence moments. Yeah, uh, for me too. And it's, it's different, right? Because the, the Bakuda scene was just like murder for like the glee of it. Um, but this is like a, these people are not fucking around and they like, this is definitely not a game. Like, th and they, they, they have motivation behind it. It's not just, I'm crazy. It's, I, I, I am motivated and I have nothing left to lose. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and before we move on, I just wanted to say something that Taylor's right here that they like Taylor's right. And, and Brian is wrong in my opinion, that they are responsible for this. They have a responsibility to go out there and try to stop it. Yes. They did not kidnap, uh, purity's baby. They did not release the information on empire empire 88, but they have allied themselves with coil and by, assisting him in his plans um they are culpable in some level to for, for what happens so they need like they have a moral obligation to help out in this yeah I, I think there's definitely a case for that i think yet again we see brian making like his first gut reaction is conservative and and cautious and a little bit a little bit self-serving too mm -hmm. yeah so they end up calling Tattletale to talk strategy while Brian stitches up Taylor's ear. Uh, Coil says uh, apparently Coil has told Kaiser that he sent the emails, so you know, so that Kaiser would get his people off the Undersider's case. But it seems that Kaiser isn't telling his people, probably just to let them continue to wreak havoc for a while. Yeah, but I don't even know like what to believe anymore. Like that could be true. Um, it makes sense for Kaiser to want to do that, but it also makes sense for Coil to just not tell him because I think. When he released this information, he wanted this kind of reaction. Um, this is what he wanted. So I don't know. Like, it's just, I can't trust anyone. Yeah, I'm not really sure what Empire 88 gains by going on just a, like, massive, it's not even a crime spree. It's just like a a, a terror campaign, right, basically. Right. It's like, there's no way this is going to, there's no way after this is done, everybody's just going to be like, okay, all right everything's fine now because you got your kid back yep yep so um so yeah it's it's kind of surprising to me that that at the end of this conversation all the all the undersiders agree that they're going to go on the offensive uh, and go find purity because they don't even seem to have like a, a tactical answer to capes like purity or or, or to hook wolf for that matter um at this point, like, I guess their plan is to try to communicate with Empire 88, but um, they, they're 
they kind of move out as if they're on like an attack mission. So it's a little, little, little ambiguous, I guess. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's probably just them underestimating their opponents. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think they felt like they would be as completely overwhelmed as they are in the fights that we're going to see in the next couple chapters. Um, It's not a very good plan, but I do appreciate that they, that at least the majority of them felt like they had to, uh, they had to participate in this in some way. Um, I mean, we know Taylor felt that way, but um, the rest of the team seems that they mostly agree. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So uh, Coyle sends a couple of his mercs to pick them up in a fake ambulance. And uh, while Gru and Skitter are in the ambulance, they're kind of discussing the situation. Uh, Gru actually seems concerned that Taylor was disappointed in him for not leaping to protect people from Empire 88. And she responds that she thinks of him as honorable. And then as he starts to explain that he's not such a great person, the ambulance gets kicked over by Hope Wolf. And I think Brian's honor as it is, uh, just doesn't extend very far. Um, he's interested in his family. He's interested in his team and that's it. And anything outside of that bubble, uh, Brian isn't concerned with, he's not willing to take the risk. And I think he actually explicitly says that at the end of this chapter, but this Mm -hmm. is, this is another uh, hint towards that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We've, we've seen him be protective of other people, but does not extend beyond that. Yeah. Uh, so, so hook wolf, shows up is this and, and he's kind of fully transformed into his creature that looks like a wolf made of hooks so is this the first <laughs> time we've, we've seen hook wolf do this i think so um he appears to be able to extrude like a whole body of shifting spinning metal hooks and spines that walks around on four legs uh it's it's not clear at this point how this works exactly power powers wise but uh i don't i don't find it hard to imagine what this looks like and it looks pretty badass honestly yeah, we've I've seen in in some of the Reddit comments um, in the past people talking about you know how I think we we mentioned it last week actually how like Hook Wolf and if the if the the bar had gone into a battle royale um, that Hook Wolf would have been one of the ones on the top and that made no sense to me at the time and uh, and now I get it um, <laughs> he's literally a wolf thing made of hooks yeah that seemingly uh, has no weakness at all. And and it's I feel slightly bad actually because even when I was saying that I like did not occur to me that that would be a spoiler but it clearly is so whoops no I don't I don't um, think so yeah, I, well, I mean it's I don't think that spoils a reveal or anything he's just a badass yeah yeah well just in the sense that it's something that you had no reason to know but yeah um so screw and skitter escape from the the damaged van uh and and the mercs. Also, they're all under cover of Gru's darkness and uh, looks like they're going to make it. But then Storm Tiger catches up and shows that not only can he partially dissipate the darkness with the force of his wind, but he can also sniff people out just fine in the darkness. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. So so we've we got some some pretty strong opponents here and we move into 7.8. Um, so Storm Tiger is is looking for the people in the van and says, yep, there's the bug girl and there's the, one of the mercenaries over there and there's the other one. But, uh, but, uh, that grew guy, he's not around anymore because I don't smell him. So Scott, do you remember when Brutus, the dog thinks of grew as scentless man in his chapter? And did you think that would come into play later? I mean, I remember it after I saw you write it down here in our notes. (laughs) 
but no, I, I did not remember that happening until you mentioned it. Um, and I certainly never would have thought something as, uh, innocent and, and seemingly unimportant as that would come into play (laughs) in a major way. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was definitely put there intentionally. Yeah, absolutely. uh, Now it's highly relevant because yeah. So, so also just while we're on this topic, if what we know of powers at this point suggests that a power is in some sense fitted to a person and their situation at the moment they gain the power, then does knowing that Brian's power gives him not only darkness, but also apparent odorlessness mean anything? Well, that he's a no good liar. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I think it means he was trying to hide. Um, you know, we have basically his power muffles or removes just about every sense. So, um, you know, can't see, can't smell him, can't really hear him, um, can't use any kind of technological radar system or anything. He was hiding from something when his power triggered. That's what that says to me. All right. That's a very interesting statement, Scott. I can hear you. I can hear your smile. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Moving on. So Gru slips away while Storm Tiger and Hulk Wolf menace Taylor. Uh, the woman Merc shoots at the Empire 88 villains until Cricket attacks her with scythes and injures her pretty badly. Storm Tiger's aerokinesis is once again a pretty creative power, I think. He can not only can he like fly around and shoot blasts of air, but he can form these nearly solid blades or, or claws of compressed air kind of coming out of his hands. And then he can release that compressed air suddenly to create like an explosion yeah and they even like take that to its logical conclusion which is i'm gonna stab you with my compressed air blade and then explode it and there's a hint Mm -hmm. like you want to see what that happens what what that looks like when i do it and i'm sitting here like yeah kind (laughs) of yeah maybe not the tailor though no 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 but i mean that's again like wild bow takes this power and he makes a twist on it that makes it cooler than it even originally sounds yeah, and this is uh, example number 473 of <laughs> Wildbow's imagination not flinching away from horrifying visuals, Yeah, it is. which I thank him for. And, and it is kind of crazy that, you know, we're seven arcs into a 31-arc story, and every single one has, without fail, introduced a new power that's mm-hmm. different from everything else we've seen and different from what we've seen in other stories. And it shows, in my opinion, no signs of stopping, um, that, that we're just going to continually like, get introduced to new interesting powers. Um, and it keeps things fresh. Like There's, there's always a fear in these kind of things. Like Every arc has their major big battle, and there's always kind of a fear that these battles start to get one note and boring. But by constantly introducing new powers into it um, that change strategies, none of, these, none of these fights ever feel repetitive. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, and we're building such a big cast of, of heroes that the way in which the powers play off of each other, both synergistically and, and against each other, I think is um, starting to become more and more salient, which is also one of the things that's fun about this story. Yeah, yeah. So Gru is pretty clutch here. He tosses an O2 tank into the midst of the villains and then shoots it with his handgun, briefly knocking Hook Wolf back and injuring Storm Tiger enough that Gru can come up on him and just shoot, shoots him in the legs. Um, there's, it's kind of an extended action sequence here where Hoke Wolf is chasing Taylor, Cricket is fighting Gru, um, 
the the darkness is covering them, so Taylor is able to kind of engage with Cricket, and eventually it ends up with um, them pretty much injuring uh, Cricket pretty horrifically and, and managing to escape. Um, and then at the end of it, uh, Taylor is thinking about how annoying it is that it seems like everybody has counters for both her and Gru's powers, and Gru reminds us how valuable Tattletail can be in understanding the nature of other people's powers because they were really hampered by not understanding what Cricket's power actually was. Yeah, this is really one of the first fights where we can't just like turn to Tattletail and say, explain this. Um, right. At the end of the fight, we still don't have an actual like definitive handle on what Cricket was doing. I mean, we know there's some kind of sonar. It messes up bugs. It seems to mess up Taylor. It might have messed up Gru in some way too, but we're not entirely sure. Mm-hmm. And and the result of that, they don't they don't really win. I mean, they win in the effect of that they they took Cricket out of the fight, but they just kind of run away. Um, and you know, I, I wouldn't call this a win for the undersiders. Um, and yeah, you're right. Taylor is, is or uh, Tattletail is very, very important. Yeah, it's it's really that, that's an interesting point because I think you can. It it all depends on framing. Like from from Gru and and Taylor's perspective, they just escaped by the skin of their teeth and almost got just brutally cut apart by these three really scary guys. But of course, what actually happened was they pretty severely maimed two of them. Uh, so right, yeah. So so this is. Yet again, a subtle example of undersiders actually being terrifying, um, even though, like, amongst themselves in their own heads, they don't think of themselves that way. The only uh, the only part that felt weird to me with this was that was Hookwolf's kind of just disappearance from the fight. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it felt like maybe we just didn't know, like, there was no way for them to realistically defeat him. Um, and we needed them to not die here. So we just kind of had to remove from the fight. Like I know it says he like, he ran away and was like trying to get a, a better vantage point to, to seek them out. But I don't know. It just felt like we were just getting him out of the fight. Cause we didn't know how to deal with him. Yeah. I mean, I think narratively that's, that's sort of necessary, but yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm not, yeah. I, it, it, I'm not saying definitively it's a bad thing. It's just felt a little weird to me. Yeah, it's it's funny. I I noticed stuff like that more on on subsequent you know read through and, and paying attention, but um, I don't think that bothered me the first time probably. So the uh, Taylor and Grew find the undersiders waiting in an old boarded up church, uh, and this this would be an awesome shot in a in a TV show, and this this image is very twig. I don't know what that means, but <laughs> yeah, this would be a really cool shot. I think one of these days we're going to have to do an episode or a bonus, something about what a worm TV show would cinematically look like. Um, Cause I think that would be really interesting, but yeah, this is another one of those shots that feels very cinematic. Yeah, we are. We are professional talkers about TV. That's so, true. That's true. So yeah, we should do that. Uh, Rue suggests that they start making harassing guerrilla strikes against targets of opportunity uh, yet again, fronting a conservative and cautious plan. Uh, but Gru is pretty incapacitated from blood loss from his injuries at um, Cricket's hands. So Tattletail points out that if they take this conservative approach, then Purity will probably have flattened half the city before they accomplish anything, and Gru will have passed out from blood loss. Therefore, they need to go after Purity directly. Yeah, and again, this is kind of a very reckless plan. But I think Tattletail just feels like she 
is the only one that can stop this, so she has an obligation to. Um, she's the only one that can talk her down using her power. Um, and, and Taylor goes along for the ride because she feels a, an, an intense moral obligation to participate in this. So, I mean, I guess it makes sense from that perspective. But yeah, this seems really dangerous. Yeah. Yep. I mean, yep. Yeah, it, it, and it turns out to be because uh, yeah. things don't necessarily go too well for them. But then we move into the biggest fight we've seen mm-hmm. in the this, this story so far. Yep. That's right. 7.9 opens. Uh, they're mounting up the dogs, and Gru gets a bit annoyed at how overly solicitous Taylor is being. She keeps asking, like, oh, are you okay? Are you sure you're okay? And uh, this makes Taylor conscious of the fact that her romantic overture has seemingly soured their easygoing friendship. Yeah, consequences to the actions, right? We're seeing the, the team kind of splinter a bit here. Yeah, 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 yet again. I mean, now there's... There's even more rifts than there were before, and uh, it's not quite the hunky-dory, pally environment that it was before. Nope. So before they move out, Coyle texts them, telling them to be careful. <laughs> Thanks, Coyle. That's really <laughs> helpful. Right. You're great. You're really yeah. helpful. Thanks. Thanks, bud. Um, so as they as they ride out, they get a, a take on what's happening. It looks like a New Wave is taking on Empire 88. In the sky, Purity is battling Lady Photon, a.k.a. Photon Mom, and Laser Dream and Glory Girl. Gives you a sense of how strong Purity is, that like we know how strong Glory Girl is, and Purity is fighting her and two other apparently strong people at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then down at street level, we've got Shielder, Flashbang, Brandish, Krieg, Victor, Othala, Alabaster, Night, Fog, Panacea, Vista, Clockblocker, and then, Jesus, this is before we even see Manpower, Aegis, Crusader, and Rune are also in the mix. <laughs> so this is like, this is a war. This is frankly too many capes and too many powers to go too much into, you know, um, especially because most of them aren't described at this point still. Um, although the ones that we do see are, are creative and awesome. Um, Scott, maybe you can highlight the ones that you want to react to. Yeah, I really don't want to like we could spend an hour on this one chapter alone. And I don't want to go into too much detail on any of these people besides the one that the story kind of already naturally goes into that much specifics with. Um, I, I just really wanted to comment on how cool this whole part is. Um, like last arc, we got kind of a full scale battle with a, a ton of the heroes going against the undersiders, but that's really tiny compared to what this is. Like you said, this is, this is all out war. And I really kind of love how, Wild Bow like just crisscrosses across the battlefield, and we kind of run by different groups fighting each other and see it that way. Um, we don't really focus on any of them other than a sentence or two. We just get a good enough description to understand that it's complete chaos. And like the, the idea of dropping a whole bunch of new capes and powers all at once feeds into that chaos. Like it's completely overwhelming from my perspective. Like I didn't know, I didn't recognize half these names. I didn't know what any of them like what they did power wise um and it's overwhelming but like we're supposed to be overwhelmed in this moment like this is something a bigger scale than we've seen at any point in this book so i think that 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 feeling of overwhelming that i got is absolutely intentional and it really works here to to establish the scale of this conflict yeah i think that makes sense because it's like almost the first thing that happens is somebody gets thrown through a wall and then we see like giant chunks of debris falling down trying to crush them which which we didn't even know was a power at this point right um 
so yeah it's it's like this onslaught of of really deadly powers and and yet again i mean that speaking of uh things that would make a good uh, a good tv show or a good movie like i'm my my camera eye is like following them as they turn the corner on the dogs and just see this vista of you know laser battles in the sky and floating floating rocks and like flying ghostly apparitions and it's just uh it's kind of awesome yep yeah i can see that too it it is really well established like the writing here is very good um it it it, and i think i think maybe i think wildbo said he came back and rewrote this chapter um i wasn't yeah i'm not sure which chapter he was referring to actually yeah i think i think it might have been this one because he said there was another big battle coming up that he went back and rewrote and was much more satisfied with it the second time around um and this this is very well done so i could see it being this one okay yeah maybe so so uh yeah so they're they're moving in they're moving in closer they're trying to get closer to purity um because they want to talk to her and rune who is a telekinetic who can lift like pretty heavy amounts of stuff as long as she's touched them first is dropping stuff on them um and regent kind of takes her out by causing her to fall off of the rock that she's floating on but I, I do like how Taylor specifically tells him not to kill her when he makes her fall off her floating rock. Yeah, this isn't too shocking from Taylor's perspective. Like we talked about how she might be a supervillain now, but she's still a good person. She's not going to just needlessly kill people. Um, more shocking to me is that Regen just kind of listens to her. And I think that, again, is a hint that Taylor is maybe naturally just taking over as leader of this place, um, that he just kind of says, OK, and, and right. listens to her. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay, I guess she's. I guess she's thinking of the details. Yeah. And I don't. I don't want to have to be bothered with that. So right. I'll just just listen. I also just wanted to say that Sabrina, the teenage Nazi, is like the best quip ever. And Taylor even like makes a comment that she's not quippy. Like, what are you talking about? That was amazing. Yeah. Taylor lacks confidence. Lacks confidence in her quips. <laughs> so uh, Rune ends up collapsing the building that they're on top of and uh taylor kind of urges uh the dog she's on angelica to sort of hop between rune's levitated islands on the way down into the alley yeah this might be me reading into things a little too much but i I am wondering if taylor's ability to suddenly control angelica better has to do with uh taylor's change of status to rachel um because we saw in the brutus chapter that brutus understood who rachel's alpha was um, and, and and that was at the time Brian, but maybe Angelica is recognizing Taylor as the new alpha of my alpha so that she's listening to her. Um, I, th- again, that might be me reading into stuff a little too much, but. I mean, that's, that's really fascinating. I mean, it, it, it makes sense even if it wasn't, uh, textually intended. Right. So that's, that's one I of those will... things that feels like it probably was not intentional, but it just, everything's so well-defined that it just lines up. Right. This is where I say headcanon accepted. <laughs> um, so so terrifying villains, night and fog, confront them in the alley that they landed in. And I remember distinctly being worried for them at this point when I first read it, because these guys have a really scary power and we don't know anything about it, really. All we've seen them do is horribly murder someone, some innocent person. Um, and And our heroes don't seem to know how it works either enough to begin protecting against it. Although, of course, Tattletail is here to help. And uh, the first thing she says is not to turn their backs. Yeah, and this goes to show, like, how important setup is, right? Like, if we had 
not known them and they were just two people that appeared at the end of the end of the alley we wouldn't know what to expect and we still don't fully know what to expect but we know enough to remember what they did to that cameraman so quickly and easily so like even with that that quick moment of setup like we see the the escalation here that um we started off with hook wolf then we moved on to the rune fight and then we stride and it's almost like it's boss battle time Mm -hmm. and i think that's done really well that's that's a great description of how that feels actually yeah when you see them turn the corner that's totally a like oh boss battle time feeling right right and it requires that setup for it to work that way Mm -hmm. so after knight uh badly messes up a couple of the dogs without seeming to really do anything or to move much tattletale explains that she turns into a really powerful monster but only when nobody's looking at her so now we understand why she pairs up with a guy who can turn into fog who also happens to be her husband yeah, this was the moment that I thought that maybe the dogs are going to die. And it was like the first moment I, I thought it was possible that one of the dogs could die. And I got really scared. <laughs> humans, yeah, I mean, humans, eh, the dogs. Yeah, right. I mean, that's that's why you put dogs in a, sco- in a story spot is that you can <laughs> twist people's hearts. Don't you do this, Wild Bo. <laughs> um, so Gru passes out or, or, you know, almost passes out just as the enemies throw a flashbang. And then we move into 7.10. Um, so a lot's happening here, obviously. It's it's a combat scene. And Taylor is taking Knight on one-on-one. And basically, the imperative for Taylor is to not take her eyes off of Knight. And Knight, of course, has innumerable tricks to try to get people to break line of sight. So she tries to use a smoke grenade so that she can transform within it. Um, she gets in a good hit on Taylor, actually. But the spider silk costume saves her once again. And then Knight uses her cloak as another vision barrier to briefly transform, but doesn't manage to do any damage this time. So, yeah, it's just it's really cool yet again to see like a villain or, or, you know, a cape in general who has put a lot of thought into their power. And you're seeing them be creative and and uh, and, and all the ramifications of that power. Yeah. And uh, and our hero is kind of completely outclassed here. Like she she fights back but she can't keep up like she's losing right so yeah tattletale tries to intervene um even at the point where knight is clearly clearly winning and about to kill taylor with a knife and then at that point tattletale shoots her a few times with a handgun um which is definitely a uh escalation for tattletale specifically yeah, and we see how surprised she is by it, right? Like, like how uncomfortable she is with having to shoot someone. Um, I think this this lets us know, like you were saying, that Lisa does genuinely care about Taylor um, because she has this visceral reaction to, to her being in physical danger. Um, but it, she's very disturbed by having to shoot someone. Um, and this might be the very first time she's actually had to do that. So, you know, Lisa is a very mysterious and ki- possibly untrustworthy character. But uh, she doesn't have to commit acts of violence very often, and she might be better than I was was building her up to be by my always like thinking she's giving double talk. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. I mean, we've seen I think a few times we've seen examples of her of her acting in a very uh, quick thinking, selfless way to protect Taylor, and this is yet another one of those. Mm-hmm. So at this point, purity, who has now been established as you know, ridiculously strong, flies down, and she blinds everyone with her light, which gives Knight yet another chance to tra- uh, to transform, um, which completely heals her to her 
to her default state, which is just completely unfair on top of everything else that she can do. She can do that. Yeah. Um, and the only reason Purity doesn't kill everyone at this point, actually, is because Regent caused her to miss her shot at the Undersiders. Um, but they are finally close enough to talk to Purity. So Paddletail manages to offer her the location of where Aster is being hidden and explain that the Undersiders did not do this to them. So Purity accepts the deal on the condition that she can bring Tattletail with her, and the Empire 88 crew moves on after menacing the Undersiders briefly, and then the Undersiders call in medical evac from Coil. Yeah, and this the, the real important thing here is that the Undersiders did not win. Um, they lived, they didn't lose, but they definitely didn't win, and they're just completely outclassed. Like, Purity, Knight, and Fog, the combination of those three heroes are like a level above everything they've fought before and they really had no strategy to defeat these people and that ties into our ongoing arc theme of life in this real world as a real supervillain is not so escapist and easy and wonderful as taylor originally thought it was yep yeah i mean there's a there's definitely a power hierarchy that goes well above them and uh, we're starting to get clued into that so Gru gets fixed up by the medics and Tattletail texts indicating that Purity got what she was after. Yeah, but uh, Tattletail's wording here is really weird. She texts back, um, she got what she needed, which is kind of seemingly intentionally vague. Um, and that just makes me question, is there something else going on here? I, would, I don't know. What did you think? Um, I guess if I had to try to explain that as being weird, it would be something along the lines of they sometimes try to have like communication protocols where they don't, they don't use each other's um, like they won't talk explicitly about what they're talking about when they're talking on the phone, you know, gotcha. just in case someone's listening in. I mean, that's, I'm speaking off the cuff here, but that seems plausible. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah, so I mean, just this is another uh, just to to wrap up this chapter. Uh, Tattletail's actions here, where she she kind of puts herself at risk to uh, to to kind of right the wrong that was done to Purity, um, and and her reaction um, suggests that again, like believing in this happy-go-lucky cops and robbers view of, of Cape life was actually important. It was an important narrative for her. And, you know, like, like we mentioned before, when that, when that narrative strains, when those compartments start breaking, when she sees people being really hurt, she, she has a really hard time with it. Um, so that's, we're, we're getting to know her a bit better. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. So we move into 7.11 and a week has passed. The Undersiders have had time to heal up and they're heading down into Coil's base to give their answer to his deal. So Coil's base, uh, which is built as a sub-basement of what will at some point be a high-rise, is a legit supervillain super base. It's got two floors, it's all concrete, metal catwalks, tons of armed henchmen in uniform everywhere. Like, this guy really has things together. Yeah, and it's like, Coil kind of embraces... It's typical supervillain stereotypes, right? Like even his plan is city domination. So it's like very, it's very comic booky, and his base fits that. And I love that, like it shows that escalation, right? These are not people playing at being villains anymore. This is a legitimate supervillain. Yeah, right. I think it's probably in some on some level intentionally meant to contrast with 
um, the the loft right. that the undersiders stay at, which is just like a you know a bunch of teenagers hanging out in a warehouse, basically. Mm-hmm. So they, as they enter, they come upon Coil meeting with what are obviously more of the business oriented elements of his organization, and he's ready to hear their answer. So Tattletale takes point and says, number one they can't keep getting into these big fights and escaping by the skin of their teeth all all rapid fire like like they have been so far throughout the story that we've been reading and um you know part two is that the undersiders have come around to the idea of joining and accepting his deal but they now have some reservations on the basis of how coil handled the empire 88 identity reveal and coil responds you know, being regretful and saying that the timing was a mistake, that he that he'd been planning to blow open Empire 88 in exactly this way for years and just happened to get the final bits of information recently. And he admits that he forgot about the Undersiders and he concedes that he won't take any plans of this scale without first consulting the parahuman teams who work for him. So how do you feel about Coyle's response here? <laughs> this is such a bullshit. Like, I don't buy this at all. Like... A couple days after revealing his master plan to his parahumans team, he just forgot about them. Uh-huh. Um, he also mentions that he knew that Rachel was the final holdout um, on their team of deciding whether they were going to join them, which gives a point towards our theory that the Empire 88 magically appearing in front of her dog shelter is not as coincidental as we've seen. Like, yeah. like he's he's playing all these people and it's so obvious and they just don't seem to notice at all. Yeah, I think they don't want to. Like we were saying yeah. earlier, a lot of them are, are are kind of desperate for this to happen. I mean, I think we're gonna. The next thing that happens is the clearest indication of that. How many of them manage to just kind of willfully not grasp what's going on? Right. Yeah. So, um, regarding their concern for continued safety, Coil Coil reveals one of his secret weapons, which we didn't even know he had actually. So he brings out a strung out twelve year old girl, and we don't know who this is at first, and he asks her hypothetical questions about the success rate of a hypothetical mission that he might send the undersiders on. Um, and she immediately gives very precise probabilities of success for that mission that he describes. Um, except when he keeps asking her questions, the numbers start to get confused in, in ways that don't really make logical sense. The numbers are obviously changing as he's asking them. And uh, Coyle is clearly unsettled and surprised by this. The demo isn't working the way he intended, I think. Um, so specifically, the survival rates of, of pretty much everyone who's mentioned in these, in these scenarios are rapidly plummeting the, the longer he asks questions. So Coyle tersely dismisses everyone in, and interprets, basically interprets this as a sign of an anomaly that needs his full attention. I know how to win people to my side. Here's a 12-year-old girl I kidnapped and hopped up on drugs. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is like, the, first of all, this power is incredibly powerful, right? Like the ability right. to do this is super powerful. Um, we were talking earlier today about how it's like a, a an RPG I've played where like you have different guys that you send on missions and like you get a success rate. Like you send three level four guys on a mission and you get a 70% success rate. You send three level five guys and you get a 90%. And this like, nope, being able to know your success rates completely changes how you approach everything. Um, so that's huge. But I, I kind of like that. First of all, the importance of that power a and the fact that something crazy is happening b um that i think we will learn later is the end bringer coming um is kind of 
take taken a side seat towards the reveal of the most important part, which is that Coyle has kidnapped and drugged up a 12 year old girl. Um, and I, I like how the story just like focuses on that while having this other stuff in the background. Sure. But how the story, like how it's written focuses in on that fact and that fact alone. And which makes sense because we're in Taylor's head and her reaction to this is immediate and visceral. Yeah. It's, it, it is interesting because we think of Coyle as being really smart at this point. But I'm honestly not sure whether to interpret his apparent callousness about revealing his captive to them as him being such a psycho that he's that it just doesn't occur to him that they'd be freaked out by this, or he knows they're going to be freaked out by it, and and it's what it's what Lisa says later that like this is a test to see how loyal we're going to be, um, because. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think definitely the first time I read it, I was like, oh, this guy is just over the edge and he doesn't even realize how horrible this is. And he doesn't even realize that the undersiders are going to be freaked out about this. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it might be a combination. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, we move into chapter seven, twelve to get the reactions. Um, uh, or actually, sorry, before that, uh, Taylor explains because she's been paying attention that Coyle's precog is the kidnapped girl, Dinah Alcott, that the undersiders bank robbery serve as a distraction for. Um, this allows the kidnapping to take place. And so basically Called they're it. responsible. Yep, yep. It's all their fault. Yep. So seven twelve opens and Taylor is super pissed. Uh, Tattletale says she kind of knew about it, but didn't think it would be a quote, serious kidnapping. <laughs> Which this is the this is the, the greatest example of Tattletale also doing compartmentalization, yeah, like yeah. you were saying that she's like, look, it wasn't going to be like this kind of kidnapping of a of a young girl. It's going to be a much different, <laughs> more friendly kind of kidnapping of a young girl. Um, and so basically, she thought Coyle just wanted Dinah for political leverage and not as a slave. Uh, some of the undersiders would be happy to walk away at this point. Uh, except Taylor actually feels responsible and she feels like she can't actually walk away because she can't leave Dinah in coils, coils. Um, very, very clever, Matt. Thank you. Uh, Brian is, is too committed. He's too committed to, to getting his sister uh, in a better situation. And he just has a nice neat justification for why this is all okay. Like you were mentioning earlier, it's, it's like, he's like, she falls outside of my circle of concern. So I don't care. Um, and Alec, of course, just doesn't care at all. And Rachel is non-specifically unhappy with the situation, but doesn't seem too motivated to make a decision, actually. Yeah, and I think the cool thing that we're seeing here is actual real growth in Taylor. Um, throughout the last six arcs, we've talked about Taylor's compartmentalization. And we've talked about her ability to rationalize and her to grab that rational excuse for why something she wants is okay to do even though it's wrong. But now suddenly she's presented with this cold, hard consequence of her action literally staring her in the face, and she cannot look away. And everyone else does. Lisa compartmentalizes this and pretends like she didn't know. Brian finally, uh, like, clearly states his worldview that only my inner circle is important to me and nothing else is. But not Taylor. She can't. She can't compartmentalize this. She can't rationalize this. She knows it's wrong and she has to do something about it. And that shows how she's grown over the course of the story. 
Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, she's, she's, she's actually at this point furious that the team is even considering joining Coil at this point after this revelation. Um, and because it's just not even a possibility for her anymore, like you said. So she, she storms off and grew and the others start to follow, but Taylor uses her power to keep him at bay. And he eventually just lets her go because he doesn't really want to fight. Man, I can't believe the bad guys turned out to be bad guys. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how she could have ever seen this coming, Scott. <laughs> so she heads back to the loft to get her stuff and she is clearly adrift again. She's emotionally not really any better off than she was before she got her powers. Uh, so she packs up a few of her important belongings, not intending to come back. And this is this is the culmination of everything that this arc has been about, right? Like, and I love how this is written. Like, Taylor starts talking about how back in the old days she used to count every hour, every day, and as she struggled to get through it. And then she got her powers, and then the undersiders came, and then her escape came, and then she got all over that. But now that's over, and she's back to square one. Just get through today, get through tomorrow, get through the week. And this is, again, choice and, and, and consequence. And again and again in this chapter, we've seen Taylor forced to confront the reality of her her post-choice world being an undersider was an escape for her and she chased that escape but it's real now now you know brian doesn't like you you're just as powerless against your bullies as you were before um there are people out there that are much more powerful than you and will not hesitate to kill you and now the the the, the end of the thing the people that you thought of as your friends don't care about the little girl that you helped kidnap um, and in one arc, we've seen everything that Taylor held dear about this choice is just like taken away from her. Like, and she's just, it's all gone. And now suddenly this escape isn't an escape anymore. Yeah. It's, it's really gut wrenching. And, yeah. and not only that, but she's, she's, she's now run away from home on top of all that. Right. Right. It's just like, wow, this is a, this is so, uh, so heartbreaking situation to be in. So Tattletail then shows up at the loft just to talk to her. She tries to explain that nobody's happy with this, but nobody really knows what to do. Um, and, and she actually says that she hopes to find some way to resolve the Dinah situation herself, although you know she doesn't really know how she's going to do that. <laughs> and as, as they part, the sound of sirens cuts in, and Lisa's face is fearful, lacking any of its it's it's adventurousness that it normally has and she says it's an inbringer uh then lisa tells taylor that the others have already agreed that if the situation were to arise that they would go try to help and taylor says that she'll go to help as well yeah i really enjoy how this whole big fight is left completely unsettled because th uh, there's going to be fallout from everything that happened this chapter for a while but we got bigger things to worry about, so we're going to have to put that on hold. I think that's really well done. Yeah. So, so Scott, um, I could ask this now or I could ask this at the end of the interlude, but, but what do you think an inbringer is at this point? Uh, just a super, super powerful cape that um, just wants to destroy things. I don't know why they would only come at certain times. Uh, I don't know why. They um, are drawn to battle, but that's what I guess. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. We've, we really have been told almost nothing. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So we start our interlude for this arc, and we're following Hana, who is a young child um, in some... I, I, I'm not sure if she's actually Turkish or not, but there are Turkish soldiers that are death-marching her through the forest, using her to clear traps and mines with her own body. Um, and she's being physically prodded by soldiers, soldiers with guns. Her family is dead, and the children with her are dying one by one due to traps or the soldiers. So it's a pretty bad situation. And eventually, as she's walking through leading this group, fearful of stepping on some horrible trap, eventually she becomes paralyzed with fear and the certainty that she'll die if she takes one more step overcomes her. And in that moment, something happens, some kind of vision. Scott, what is your impression of what we're seeing here? Yeah, I think this is intentionally vague because showing too much here would be the answer to the overarching question of the series, which is where these powers came from. But I, I do like the imagery. I like the use of the word seeds as if like this is seeding people with their powers. Um, I don't know where it comes from or what it is, but it definitely seems like a seed lands on Hannah. She gets her powers and presumably this same thing happens to every other Cape. Um, I, I, I still have no idea what it means. Um, it's just, it, it's like a, a small clue um, that I don't know what to do with yet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like this as world building because it's, it, it really just gets your curiosity going more than anything else. It brings up way more questions than answers. And that's, I yeah. think, appropriate. At this yeah. Point I mean, we know, right. We know something died, right. We know something was alive and it died. And when it died, um, it, seeded people but it also seems to exist outside of time because this whole vision happens like in between three letters and one letter of a word someone's saying to her so it mm -hmm. like exists outside of the scope of time so um even if this thing died at once and seeded everyone that could sprinkle into different timelines whatever it wants so that's out of the picture i i don't know i don't the, the thing is i don't know but i'm intrigued yeah yeah i think that's the intent so now Hannah has a power and there's a green energy that's 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 near her and it condenses into a gun in her hand and the gun changes in response to her thoughts, gaining a silencer. And uh, she turns and prepares to shoot the soldier and then Miss Militia wakes up it, and, it, and we realize that this was a not really a dream, but but more like a dream memory. Yeah, I like how all this is, is kind of written. Um, I like the, the, the image of the dream memory and how she like says that her knife contains the dream so she doesn't have to dream anymore. That's really cool imagery, and I really like the, the, the prose that's used. Yeah, yeah. there's, there's a lot of very interesting um, introspective prose here in, in Miss Militia's head. But part of that is that she's ruminating on how she's never met another parahuman who remembers seeing the huge being in the trigger vision. And, uh, and that she actually remembers forgetting the vision and suspects that it's a quirk of her power that lets her go without sleep and then makes her dreams perfect replays of past events rather than actual dreams is the only thing that lets her hold on to this memory. So, I mean, basically the hint is that she may be the only person who re remembers this, basically. Right. And that's not exactly clear how that why that would be one of her powers um I, i'm assuming we'll learn more information about that later but yeah that's it's very interesting yeah um so she uh she recalls killing all the soldiers and then eventually being rescued by other soldiers and 
her parahuman eventually uh, parahuman ability is eventually discovered leading to her being replaced uh, sorry placed in a foster family in america and then she joins the first round of the war of the wards program which was some time ago because she's now an experienced um you know senior hero mm-hmm. so miss militia still doesn't quite feel at home in america despite her costume as motif but it, it it doesn't feel real to her although she does love it and what it represents she heads to Armsmaster's office where he's been up and working all night and talking to Dragon on the computer screen. Uh, she mentions that she doesn't sleep either, actually, but she doesn't seem to remember the trigger vision. Is he up working all night on that uh, halberd that our guys broke yep. <laughs> last term? Yep. Oops. There's some consequences right there. Oops. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, uh, sorry, Colin. So in light of recent events, it turns out that the wards and protectorate teams are going to be restructured. Um, so basically, this is the, the recent events refers to the repeated failures of the heroes and specifically Arms Master recently. So they'll be losing the Brockton Bay team. will be, will be losing Aegis and Kidwin at least, and maybe also Shadowstalker, and gaining somebody called Weld, who is a Case 53. So they mentioned the tattoo here, right? So this is kind of confirmation that the government, or at least the protectorate, is aware of these tests on people to make them into parahumans. Um, I'm assuming that's the same tattoo that we learned from Gregor the Snail. Yeah, I, th- I think that was, I feel safe assuming that, yeah. Um, terms It turns out Arms Master is also being demoted and moved to Chicago, and Miss Militia is being promoted in his place. And he's clearly heartbroken about not leading a team anymore because that's kind of his dream even though he tries to hide it yeah you kind of feel bad for him for just a second here um but this also kind of makes you wonder if arms master transfers and he's not in the city anymore Uh, as far as we know he was the only person in brockton bay that knew about skitters uh, i'm secretly a good guy plan um and considering the situation she's in right now where she's in the middle of leaving her group um that might be a bad thing but uh that might matter in the future yeah um, yeah, so as they're talking, their attention is drawn to a program um, that Dragon uses to monitor S-class threats, which uh, Arms Master has been modifying. Uh, is this the first use of the term S-class threat that we've seen? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, you had shown me, I think before we even started this, just in our, one of our many uh, worm conversations that you, where you were trying to get me to read it, that you gave me a list of all the different classifications of the powers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's the first time I've seen it, uh, in, in the story. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, so basically there's the, their, their, their explanation, I think, um, I guess I'd be somewhat interested to hear your reaction to it at this point, because like you said earlier, when we were talking about inbringers, they're saying that, that the inbringers are, are drawn to certain circumstances. Um, so those circumstances could be like disasters or or, or, you know, basically bad things happening. And, and one of the things that draws them is high levels of conflict. So the implication here is that Dragon's computer program is is saying that all of this conflict that's been happening in Rockton Bay, because Taylor had to go and take out Lung, basically, <laughs> um, uh, has attracted the attention of an inbringer. Yeah, and, and again, choice and consequence, right? Like, this is di- indirectly partially her fault um the i think the important part going forward will be 
will Taylor realize this? Will she be made aware of it? Because that's really important to her growth as a character is to be able to fully understand that what is happening now is partially your fault. Um, and she sees it with on a smaller scale with her, her dealings with coil. But this is again, like the way people react to this thing. I don't fully understand what it is, but the way people react to this thing makes it seem very serious. And she needs to be able to, to come to understand that this thing being here is her fault. And I hope the story does that. Yep. Yeah. And as a final end cap for this part, uh, at the moment that it's understood that the Endbringer is coming, Miss Militia sees a glimmer of hope in Colin's eyes. Yeah, remember when I felt bad about him for a second? <laughs> yeah. Never mind. Yeah, but <laughs> but like, I think it's cool how this contrasts with how the last chapter ended, right? Where you have Lisa, the bad guy, looking terrified at the thought of a an Embringer. Armsmaster, the quote-unquote good guy, just sees it as an opportunity to be exploited um, to regain some position of power. I'm assuming that's what the, the the glimmer of hope is. I don't know, but that certainly seems to be what they're indicating. Um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's, that's a, a direct juxtaposition between these two characters. Very similar scene, end of scenes for both of them, but um, interesting. Yeah, uh, one, one interesting thing about Arms Master's situation, I think, is that, like, obviously it's it's easier in a lot of ways to be a, to be a villain, and it's harder to be a, a hero, especially because as we've seen repeatedly, there's all this bureaucracy and now like he's being, he's being basically demoted and moved to another city. And it doesn't really sound like he has any say in the matter. Um, so like it's already, it's already harder to be a hero and, and they're making it even harder for him. So it's like, um, the, the world is kind of stacked against the very concept of being a hero like just like being right. a pure-hearted and and selfless hero because even even this guy who like he's he's at least trying to be on the good side and they they're just like just making it harder for him. So yeah, I mean I I can see feeling bad for him and um yeah, I mean it's always it's always good to yeah, I mean he that's the thing. He's a, he's a fully fleshed out realized character. He's not a Right, right. He's not a he's not a puppet, so um yeah, so Scott, that was that was arc seven buzz. Uh, let's let's talk about your speculations. My favorite part. All right. Um, first, I'm just going to update you on one of my old ones that I'm I'm not ready to say I'm wrong yet, but I'm starting to think I am. Um, in the in arc four, I talked about Rachel being the one that intervenes in Taylor's school problems. Um, obviously, that can't be fully true anymore because she's currently not going to school i still think it's possible that rachel is the one that uh attacks taylor's bullies for her but i'm i'm less and less confident in that as we go along so uh the rest of them i'm still pretty confident in at least the ones that i haven't already got wrong i'm still pretty confident in them (laughs) um but you we will always put a link in in the show notes where you can go and see my spreadsheet where i'm tracking all these and updating them as i find out whether i'm right or not um but that's the only one i'm I'm pretty sure i'm wrong on but not ready to, to call it yet okay but i do um have a couple uh new ones 
Um, my first one is we've seen Taylor use all these different kind of powers. I'm going to guess one more thing that Taylor is going to find a way to do. And I'm going to say that she is going to use her bugs to fly in some way, whether, whether she's going to get a bunch of flying bugs in her armor that lift her or something like that. I think she's going to find a way to do that. I'm pretty confident in that, Matt. All right. And then lastly, um, I, I hinted this earlier in the episode. I think I'm pretty confident now that Sophia is a cape of some sort. Um, I'm not sure if she's a good guy or a bad guy. Um, it, it seems like she would be a bad guy from her actions in this section, but I think it makes more thematic sense to say that she's on the superhero side because that would conflict directly with Taylor and her view on uh, on authority and her view on the superheroes. Maybe she's a ward. I don't. I wouldn't know who. Um, but uh, yeah, that's 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 the other one. That's all I got this week. All right. Yep, this continues to be my favorite segment. <laughs> so, that wraps up Arc 7 Buzz. I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion and hearing Scott's reactions. As always, we appreciate your feedback, and we're always trying to improve, so let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. Yeah, and you can uh, reach us via email at dailyplanetfilms at gmail.com or on Twitter at dailyplanetfilms. Uh, my personal Twitter Twitter is at scottdaily85, and Matt's is at mordenman... It's in the show notes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> follow us. We are smart and funny. You should do that. Yeah, if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Worm, we strongly recommend you do so, and that way you'll never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. Just search for The Daily Planet Podcast, spelled D-A-L-Y. And always, uh, as always, you can find this and all the other podcasts we do, all of our writing, essays, film and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. We also have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms. Uh, we've got a lot of cool benefits and goals lined up. Uh, so if you like what you see there, please pitch in a dollar a month or anything else you can afford. Every cent will be put back into covering our costs to keep this podcast running. And while you're on Patreon, don't forget to donate to our Lord and Savior, Wildbo, because unlike us, he does this for a living. And if you are one of those people that can't spare any extra cash, we completely understand. But there are still tons of ways to help us out. If you're listening on iTunes, um, if you can take a second and rate and review the podcast, iTunes, like, they place such a, a ridiculous amount of importance on ratings and reviews as far as where you end up on the charts and all that stuff. And so any number of rates or reviews like helps exposure like a crazy amount. Um, also, uh, if you know any worm fanatics that are not already listening to the podcast, if you could share it with them, if you think they'd like it, um, or, or maybe you're like Matt and I, and, and, uh, you've, you've been like Matt, you know, sitting in my ear for the past two years telling me I need to read this book over and over again. Um, you could use this podcast as like a way of finally, you know, getting one of your friends to, to approach the book and say, look, you can read it. And then you can listen to these smart people talk about it for a couple hours, uh, every, every section. Um, so I, I, I think if you could just help us out in any of the, you know, share it with your friends, do all this stuff, that would be so great. Yeah, we would really appreciate that. That would mean a lot to us. Next week on the podcast, we cover Arc 8, Extermination. And Matt, you know, since since we started this podcast, I've I've seen little drops in, in Reddit threads and, and stuff talking about, oh, I can't wait till they get to Arc 8. So this has kind of been built up for me a little bit. So I'm really exciting, excited with this. And it's not just built up from outside stuff. Like you can tell within the story, things have been building to this moment. Um, so I'm really looking forward to this discussion next week. 
Yes, me too. So everyone, tune in next Worms Day for another exciting episode of We've Got Worm. Bye.